Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 173 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a photographer who has owned their own gallery in Jackson Hole, Wyoming since 2001, David Brookover. David's gallery is filled with custom-framed platinum palladium prints from his extensive travels throughout the world as a fine art landscape photographer. David got his start as a photographer while studying acupuncture in Japan back in 1986, where he was immersed in the Japanese culture, which had a significant influence on his work as a photographer. David and I discussed some really interesting topics this week, including how he used photography as a way to understand a new place and new culture, transitioning from full-time job to full-time photography, platinum palladium printing and his printmaking process, the secret to longevity in the craft of landscape photography, and much more. Well, before we get started, I did want to tell listeners about an awesome opportunity to learn from two great photographers in the Columbia River Gorge this autumn. Gary Randall and Chris Byrne are co-teaching a fall color and waterfall workshop from October 21 through 24, and only a couple seats are left. To learn more, look for the link in the show notes. Okay. Let's get to the show. All right. Well, David Brookover, I am so excited to get you uh, as a guest here on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to meet you too, Matt. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, great. I uh, There's actually been several of my past guests that recommended you. In particular, I think one of them was Michael Strickland, because I think he he's also a film photographer and he's kind of dabbled in platinum palladium. And so right. I know that's that's something I would I'd love to talk to you about later in the podcast, but I just mean mean to mention that because you come highly recommended. Uh, yeah, he's a native Kansan too, so we stick together, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He is. Yeah. 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 That's where I was born yeah. and raised. I was yeah born there in in the 1954 and grew up on a dairy farm early on in my wow my life. So I spent a lot of time outdoors, you know, uh, going after the milking cows, you know, and everything. That's awesome. Well. For people that maybe don't know much about you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So like I said, I grew up on a dairy farm and then I moved to uh, Wichita back, I think in the fifth grade, went through uh, the school system there, graduated from East High School, uh, moved out to Colorado. That's where my real learning began and and went to college up in Colorado and uh, various times throughout my life, you know, went to college there, went in Wichita State University. Uh, I traveled a lot from about 19 until I was 19, so 1973 all the way through 80. I was living in the Northwest United States a lot, uh, studying various alternative medicines, herbology, 
hung out a lot with uh, some American uh, Indian medicine men in Nevada and California. And uh, then I took up a career of acupuncture. Uh, I went to school in Maui, in Wailuku, Maui. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. you've already already <laughs> described you've lived more life than probably most people. And you're probably, by this point in your story, you're probably, what, in your 20s and 30s? <laughs> yeah, right. So that was, uh, yeah, I lived in Palo Alto, California, and I was think, contemplating, you know, acupuncture school because of the other various traditional arts that I learned as far as medicine. And at that time, there were only three acupuncture schools. One was in Boston, one was in San Francisco, and one was in Maui. So. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty easy choice for me, you know. <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, so I went to Maui, got into school. It was a straight three-and-a-half-year program right through, nonstop. Uh, I got my uh, license and everything there. And at that time, you know, that was 1986, which, at, you know, the AIDS epidemic was in full full force and, and – uh, I was really considering, I wanted to go into a different style of acupuncture, which at that time was a blue light, cold laser. And I thought, well, the only place to learn that was to go to Japan. So I saved up the money, went to Japan, and uh, in hopes that I would learn that, then come back to the States. But I moved there. It cost a lot of money to move to Japan back in, in the 80s, as, as any time it would be. And... I uh, found out that everything I already knew and everything I had a license for, I would have to redo it in Japanese to oh, no. to study, to learn about the blue light laser. And I'm thinking, okay, my best friend in Hawaii is the head of infectious disease uh, 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 specialty, uh, infectious disease, uh, I should say that, and... Uh, head of the um, CDC for that Pacific region. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of Maui Memorial Hospital. I was already going to go to work for him if I came back, work in his clinic. But I just I could, I just fell in love with Japan. And so I thought, okay, what am I going to do here? Uh, what, maybe I'll take a year off, which everybody says, I'll take a year off, you know, and do something. So I took a year off and I ended up having to change my tourist visa to a cultural visa visa which is you take uh, Japanese language courses for six months about 40 hours a week so I did that and wow. learned learned some Japanese I probably didn't learn as much as I should have but I learned I learned a lot and you get a cultural visa and then you can end up getting a uh, uh, work visa after that and then you're kind of basically accepted by the Japanese you have to have a sponsor. So I, I taught English for a while. I did a lot of transcribing. I did a lot of uh, you know, editing for doctors in universities that were trying to go to that once-in-a-lifetime uh, symposium in the States to present something that, they're, that they've been working on in Japan in the medical field. So I spent a lot of time with doctors. And I took up photography at that time, which was 86. And I, I think I found it as a, as a method to just throw myself into the country you know i didn't understand it i didn't understand the language you know it was uh, <laughs> I mean, it was it was sort of like 
you know, it's easy to get lost in a city of 34 million people, you know, and I remember like, I really have to know where my, where my apartment is or where, how to get out of the station. And, and at that time, you know, Tokyo was building so quickly and they had about 24% of all the giant cranes in the world were in Tokyo and in Japan, just building these huge skyscrapers. So I just remember like going around like, oh yeah, that building I remember, or <laughs> I think I could go down this street, but everything was in Japanese. So um, I learned to survive there and I started photographing more and more and more along with uh, doing the transcribing teaching. And gradually I built up slowly, built up a portfolio and you know how, you know, how life is. I mean, if you're, if you're following that path, you know, with a heart, you know, you, some, it, things will kind of start to click and come to find out one of my, one of my uh, guarantors at the time. Uh, daughter worked for this huge uh, stock photo agency because stock photography was a viable, you know, uh, business back then. And it was called uh, Photonica Amana, which was kind of the artsy side of stock photography. They always had the best catalogs you've ever seen. Just really beautiful, beautiful work. And uh, most of them were Japanese photographers. So I kind of cut my teeth on the Japanese style of photography. And that's and my greatest teachers were a lot of Japanese photographers that are quite famous now. So I was thrust into that and um which was which was a nice thing. And then eventually I built up a clientele, you know, in stock photography. It took time and I had a lot of help too. I had a lot of expats that were living there that were just doing stock photography and making unheard of sums of money. And um they were they were, they also guided me a lot and um Build up that portfolio and continued shooting America mainly. And then I did some work for Mamiya for catalogs and just some of the, some of the work for their medium format cameras, the, uh, uh, the Mamiya 7172, things like that. And then my big break came a few years later when I uh, was introduced to Fujifilm. And at that time, by then, I'd already bought four by five camera, got rid of that right away, got an eight by 10 camera. Uh, Wisner from uh, Marion, Massachusetts, Ron Wisner sent me a camera. I started shooting that. So I built up this portfolio of eight by 10 of the Southwest United States and, and, and uh, you know, basically the Western part of the United States. Showed that to the gentleman who was in charge of, uh, during the Atlantic Olympics, he, Fujifilm was a sponsor. And so, um, this this gentleman there, um, Orinakasan, uh, he actually was uh, my mentor there in the international department. He took me on, and my first big trip with Fujifilm was with my now wife, and we spent five and a half months traveling all over the United States. We did about twenty four thousand miles in five and a half months, just wow. shooting literally thousands of sheets of eight by ten. Because um, you just had like unlimited access to it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they just like okay, they would give me about ten thousand dollars worth of film, and uh, then I would carry it oh. in tr trunks. They would write a little note to the head purser of American or United Airlines saying, you know, this guy is doing this, and and they'd read read the note and get kind of motion like, okay, throw it in the back of the plane or something. So they put it someplace right. so it wouldn't go through X-ray, and um, then if I needed to get more film, I would go to the New York office and they'd load me up again. So the film was free. The developing was free. Uh, I think Reed Photo actually 
And, and, and Denver at that time, they were doing the developing because it was just so easier. You you know them because you're in Colorado Springs, right? So yeah, I, that's yeah. actually who yeah. I used to do almost all of my um, printing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Bob Reed, um, that was a, that was a great job for them. And then they ended up because um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guys, in, I mean, the guys in Japan say we kind of like their style of developing. It's a little bit different than what's going on in Japan. Plus, it was probably half the price. And so we did all that, and eventually there was uh, scanning involved. So scanning was much cheaper in the States, so Reed at that time was doing it. Uh, they printed up the show for me for, that I had in Tokyo, that Fuji and Mamiya, the American Embassy, uh, 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 there were a bunch of partners um, in that show, and, and we had various shows throughout the, throughout the time there. But that was – and then later on, other – other uh, products would come up and I would go and shoot the stays for them. But um, it's kind of funny because that particular product I was talking about, that five and a half month long sojourn, that was a, that was a Provia, the first edition, the first run of Provia. Hmm. So I was shooting equal amounts of Provia. And, and of course the older film was Velvia. So right. it, it was not a fair comparison because Velvia was such a far superior film, but yeah, you know, they really wanted to see how it would react, the Probia, in the States, because it had never been released in Japan. It was the first film they made that they didn't release it in Japan first and then go worldwide. It was just the opposite. They released it to the States first. So I think Reed kind of knew how to develop it, you know, in some sense, uh, a yeah. lot better. They had more history with it. So, right. yeah. So, well, then, I, I love uh, mm-hmm. I love that you you used photography as a way to understand a new place and a new culture. I don't think I've ever talked to another uh, photographer that's kind of used it in that way. Yeah. It, it that, that's a story into itself, but <laughs> you, know, you would go, it would force you, you know, photography forces you to go to different places and, um, and see just the, the innards of, you know, of the, of the culture. Of course it was pretty obvious with eight by 10, I mean, that I was <laughs> like, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I remember I, I showed up one time. Oh my gosh. I showed up and I was literally, I took the advice of some professionals in the States and they said, look, you know, the first couple of months, don't, don't even shoot any film. Just, just figure out the movements and all that. So I'd literally go to these big temples in Japan with no film and I would huh. spend hours on end just, okay, let me see what the tilt does, the shift. Okay. And then stopping down, all this kind of stuff. And, one time I had a security guard arrest me uh, at a big shrine, which was hilarious because, uh, you know, he ended up taking me to the head priest and the head priest goes, uh, what are you doing? I go, well, it's, you know, this is the most popular shrine uh, and temple in Japan. And I just, just learning how to do this. So he took an interest and we sat around and drank sake for about an hour, you know, as, as he belittled the security guard. He was curious what, you know, what I do in the States and what, and he was looking through the camera and all that. So, you know, it was just, it was a, it was a great time. The eighties and nineties was just a fabulous time in, in Japan to be. And the people were so, they were so, you know, giving and um, supportive too. I mean, I had a lot of people just said, look, if you need to go for a couple of months, just go. When you come back, we'll have work for you. So, you know, oh, wow. it was, and that just doesn't happen that often. Uh-huh. And plus the financial community was very supportive. You know, you, you always need those guys, investment guys to buy your prints. So we did a lot of printing. It was all color back then, mind you. Everything I shot back then was color. Um, 
you know, because of Fuji, they were, they weren't really, they weren't so much pro- promoting the Acros brand or anything like that. It, you know, the money was in, um, was in your Chrome films and your negative films. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, fact is I'll tell you a secret. I remember I was talking to my, to my boss at the time. And I just think about the, the, literally the, the millions, if not billions of rolls of film that they sold, you know, throughout the world during that time. And the average cost of making a roll of a roll of a Velvia film was eight to 10 cents. Oh my God. And if it was marketed in Europe, maybe the packaging or in Japan, it might've cost 10 cents to make. Otherwise it'd be like eight cents. And on the front side, you're paying $8 at least for the roll of film. And you got $8 on the back side. So (laughs) (laughs) they were pretty flush, you know, back in those days. So So they could afford to give you 10,000 rolls of film, no problem. Or sheets of film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing. It was nothing for them. It was just, and again, they would, uh, they would market that for advertisement and they would buy it. They would buy it back from me. So, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So that was that was a great time, and but no I knew, I, you know, I really knew that as I'd hit the glass ceiling, and you know, at some point that, like a, a buddy of mine told me once, Mark Mason, you're, you're nobody until you're somebody from someplace else, you know. So, and and that's the way it is in Japan. I would see, I would meet great, great photographers. I met a lot of great photographers in the states that came through, but if you live there, I mean, you could be an incredible photographer, but you live there. That was the that was the problem. You, you needed to go be famous, then come back. <laughs> 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 you know, it's just one of those things, you know? So, but, uh, you know, I miss it dearly. I love to go back there. Uh, my wife's Japanese. So, you know, she goes back quite often, but, and I, uh, I usually go back about every five years, four to five years. It sounds like that, you know, the Japanese culture had a pretty big influence on your photography. Mm. I'm, I'm really curious to, Hear you talk a little bit about how you think um, your time in Japan, I guess, shaped the way you see the world and how you how you make photos. Well, every weekend I would always go to these huge gallery shows, and so um, and a lot of times the you know the photographers would be there, whether they were you know, American photographers, British photographers, Japanese photographers. So I could talk to them about it, but. The perspective of art in Japan that I always found interesting and, and later on learned is, you know, is their perspective of, of, of scenery too, uh, and especially in the wood blocks. You know, it's a kind of the second floor viewpoint. You're always kind of looking down into the city, down into the alleyways, down into everything. So, so it's a little different than the Western perspective. Um, I love the craftsmanship. I love the color palettes. Um, I love the it was always that it was always that uh, almost Taoistic approach to photography where you merge into the scene itself you don't try and capture the scene so much as the scene you know captures you and you just do your best to stay out of the way and yet capture it you know so mm-hmm. um it's 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 a very zen approach to it simplicity you know mindfulness um and I and that's what I loved in the early stages, uh, and then of course it became more complex, you know, as I met more and more artists. But you know, in the early days, I mean, people like Shinzo Maeda, you know, I just you should just look at some of his work in, in Hokkaido. This was just this 
you know, beautiful human being living up there in the, in the, uh, the flower fields up there, lavender fields. And Hokkaido is a very unique island in northern Japan that uh, is just very cold in the wintertime. You probably, Michael Kenna's work, you've probably seen in the wintertime there. It's very simple, just black and white, you know, mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. trees, you know, and mountainsides, fences, things like that. Very simple. Well, Maeda's work, in that, it's very colorful in the summertime. So, but there was that simplicity that was involved with it too. And they didn't really, they, you know, the Japanese are very humble, so they don't draw a lot of attention to themselves. So that's what I learned the most about there was just that, again, that Taoistic approach to, to life and um, to nature and the sacredness of nature and the respect for nature and the reverence for nature. But you're looking at it in a different way, whereas in the States, you know, people think landscape photography is like Ansel Adams, it's big, it's bold, it's majestic. Well, they don't have that in Japan. So mm-hmm. what you do is you go to a Japanese garden and they set up the garden, the perspective and the dimensions and the depth to make it appear as though it's grandiose, but it may be something you're looking at that's only, you know, 75 feet in length or 30 feet wide, you know, but it, but it right. gives that perspective and the way they, they work on the trees, you know, and, and, uh, the bonsai and everything like that. So uh, they they fine tuned it. They've kind of uh, you know culturalized nature in a way too. So hmm. uh, have you found that uh, that influence has carried over into your work here in the United States? Yes, um, yeah. Because you know when I saw the the type of art that I saw in in Japan was usually well for department stores, which were the big galleries. They would bring in the the American or the international artists that they felt that they could sell some of the work to the Japanese. So it was usually people that were, you know, who came that had a simpler approach. I mean, I don't even remember seeing Ansel Adams until maybe my 10th year into Japan. I saw uh, one of his shows and it was spectacular. It was, I mean, it was really, really good. But I had seen so many people uh, through the Western Gallery, which they had there. They actually had a Western Gallery for a few years in uh, Shinjuku, which was really big. And so I saw a lot of beautiful work through there, too. And, of course, the, the, the Japanese photographers who, you know, you're thinking of, um, you know, Kinro Izu and uh, Eiko Hosoi and Maeda and, of course, Sugimoto. I mean, Sugimoto, you don't get much more minimalistic than that. He would go out and shoot the, uh, the ocean for 10 hours. <laughs> Just, <laughs> You know, so I mean, this guy is—he's the—he's the best concept photographer. He can think up of a concept and and you know sell the print for millions of dollars afterwards. It's just amazing with this guy, but he's—he's he's a genius, you know. Uh, but you know, he would go out to these cliffs all over the world, and he would just get his camera and in the and the ISO film ratio after everything everything he'd done with the filters was about ISO one. And he would just flip, <laughs> flip the switch and let it go, you know, and, and you'd have these eerie seascapes that were all split straight across the middle. You know, just, just look him up sometimes, uh, Hiroshi Sugimoto. And uh, he shot only eight by 10. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I love that concept of that's true involvement with your subject matter. And he would literally travel all over the world doing this. And then the next thing he would did was he would go to a movie theater, like these old, beautiful movie theaters, not only in Japan, but around the world. And he would, he would um, t- 
take it take the image the duration of the film. So oh, all you have all you have is just this the stage and it's just this white light coming out. <laughs> so it, <laughs> it was the whole movie they're recorded, but it came out as just white screen, you know. Again, it's just <laughs> it's like yeah. trust me this was star wars uh yeah. you just don't know it <laughs> mm-hmm. that's funny. but um yeah exactly exactly but yeah it's just a great concept you know photographer and um so i i, I like that i like that approach to it you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and um and then again the exhibitions and the interlay with not only exhibitions but the fashion. I love Japanese fashion. And I, I got to know some of the Japanese designers. And I can, I remember one time, Matt, I have to tell you the story. I was at a friend's place. She was kind of one of my mentors in Japan. She had a modeling and an acting company, a great, great friend. And she brought me this big, beautiful, like book that was, you'd fold it out in sections. And I looked at these color palettes. I was like, what is this? And she goes, these are color palettes from about over 200 years ago for kimonos in Kyoto. But I'd never seen colors like this because they were made out of natural fiber, natural herbs and plants and everything like that. And I, all I could think of is like if somebody could just somehow create that palette, you know, on a film – you would you would rule the world. I mean, they're the most beautiful colors <laughs> I ever saw in my life, and and that's that's the deep history they had there. You know, you right. You know, you're at a friend's house and you're holding a bowl that's thirteen hundred years old. You're like, oh my god, you know, just that. that yeah, yeah, it's a great right. place. Yeah, yeah. So, no, that's that's amazing. Yeah, and you know, earlier you were talking about uh, how you had gone there to study acupuncture, mm-hmm. right? And then this arc of time occurred, and then you were photographing for Fujifilm in the Southwest. Right, right. And I was right. curious, what was that time horizon for you? Like, how long did that period of time take? So I, so when I was first shooting there, I, I, got, I think I got my first paycheck in 88 for stock photography. And I was like, wow, I can actually make money off this. So I started doing more and more of that, obviously. And then it was just building up the portfolio, you know, and, and trying to get into these places. And then with Fuji, I was photographing with them. Uh, it would have been in the, the mid to late 90s when I started working with them. Okay. So like and about so, 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah, about 10 years. Yeah. And I was just building up the portfolio and building up the portfolio and, uh, you know, and selling to, again, like finance people. Knowing that what I really want to do, because I would come back to the States a lot. I mean, every year, you know, once or twice. And um, I would see that there were more people starting to have galleries. I remember, like, I'd come to Jackson Hole, where I live now, and Tom Angleson would have, like, this little 300-square-foot small little gallery. And I thought, oh, that's, that's great. People are doing this. And go to Carmel, you'd see the places in Carmel. And... Um, I just began seeing more and more of that. So I thought, well, if I'm going to have a gallery, I don't really specialize in animals, but I love landscapes. So therefore, if I'm going to do landscapes, then the way to do it is eight by 10. <laughs> <You> know, <so. laughs> Why not? Go, right? go big or go home, right? So I started doing that. Uh, and just it took me years. I mean, literally, I think it was almost 14 years until I was at that point. And that's where a lot of people don't realize how much time goes into it 14 years until 
I had some some work that I really wanted to sell to people. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I was going with my question because one of the things that I've noticed uh, for people that seem to have a lasting uh, relationship with photography that also sustains them financially is that you're playing the really long game, right? right I mean, right. we're talking 10, 20 years of work oh, to yeah. a, that you need to amass and yeah. the patience required. I'm, I'm curious though, what do you think is kind of the secret to the longevity of staying in the craft for that long? Well, you choose a path with a heart and you stay with it. You know, you have to, you know I mean? You, you have to, because there's so many times when you would just, you would say to yourself, like, what, why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I ask myself that question every day, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you, you know, you just choose that path with a heart and you know, just be one with it and you have to traverse it to the end. I mean, you just have to, it, it's not that you, you, you think, well, do I want to, but you know, you have those doubts like anybody, but you know that it's something that at this time, wherever you are in your, in your life, uh, whether you want to believe it's, it's a, it's a one-time thing or multiple times that this is something that you have to finish this job. You know, you have to, and it's because you love it. And you really, I, I, I often thought like, what else would I do? You know? I mean, I could do the acupuncture thing. I could have made a lot more money early on like that, but it's not where my heart was at. I, I just didn't, I thought this has brought so much plus in, in, in spiritual terms, you know, I was learning so much from the universe and from, from nature and everything like that. So it was, it was a glove that fit really well at that time, you know, and still mm-hmm. does. But, uh, but I knew that after the shows at Tokyo, I knew I had gone as far as I could go in Japan because I didn't want to be stuck there. You know, I didn't want to just, you know, just uh, rest on my laurels, right? And just, okay, well, I had this show and this and that. And then, you know, that would be my memory. I, I knew I really wanted to go to the States. And because I'd been, was, had that concept and dream to go there by shooting the larger format and setting myself up for it, then it was a natural fit. I moved to Jackson Hole in 2001. Uh, March of 2001 and, and opened the gallery here in uh, May of 2001, which was small. It was a, it was a small gallery downstairs in this um, right on the square. And then within uh, about a year and a half, I had the whole place, which was nice. Uh, was yeah. that a, uh, was that a very difficult um, decision slash process for you? Or you just, you just knew yeah, like I, knew. I have to yeah. do this. Yeah. Yeah. I knew. And I had the work. I had work that was very unique for Jackson Hole. I mean, I think the first the first images I had were Japanese gardens in the Southwest. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Probably not the brightest thing to do because people go, "Where are the Teton images?" Oh, I yeah, I don't, I haven't really shown. Where are the that. pictures yeah, yeah. of the buffalo from Yellowstone? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I just kind of went with that, and people thought, "Wow, this is kind of quirky," but okay, and. They, they supported it. And then I had it for about, oh, let's see, was it about seven or eight months? And the gentleman upstairs who had met me during one of my trips, he was starting to phase out his business. So he said to me, he says, you know, um, I just want you to know that, you know, I'm going to be phasing out my business. So 
you know, if you want to, I mean, the landlord likes you a lot. So if you, you could just take over the upstairs, I thought, oh my God, I can get this whole, whole space. This is wonderful. So I was talking to Bob Reed about it at that time. And he goes, oh, you know what? If you don't think you can fill it right now or, you know, because it costs a lot to, you know, start opening up galleries and the printing and all that. And so he recommended that I team up with David Munch. And you know David Munch, right? I know of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for so, sure. So, yeah. so David, I mean, especially in the in the 70s and 80s, I mean, he was the Ansel Adams of color. You know, amazing photographer. I used to look at his books in Tokyo, you know, and and. Yeah. Scenes how he shot four by five. Of course, now shooting eight by ten. So I'd be the only guy in the bookstore looking at everything upside down, you know, because that's how you. (laughs) (laughs) And people are like, "This guy's very dyslexic, right?" So I'm looking (laughs) at it. I'm like, "Okay, now what is he? What? Okay, what kind of lens do you think? You know, like wide angle? Because Munch was really, really good at up close and then pulling the uh, the back sander back and looming the foreground. And so I I was going to say he's like the master of a master of near far. Oh my God. Yeah. And so, so I, I, he says, you know, I could set up a meeting and David was down in Santa Fe. So I went down, you know, and I mean, this is David Munch, right? So God, <laughs> and, and we met at this place and Dave was one of those, one of those old school, you know, we're just talking and he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's do it. This feels right. You know, it feels right. I'm like, I can, I can go with that. This feels right. You know, cause he, yeah, I mean, I was nobody in his, in his mind. Right. So he didn't know who I was. I wasn't on his radar except what Bob had told him. So then he joined up with me and he was there for about three years uh, at the gallery. So it went from being, it's a beautiful day gallery to Brookover Munch. And then in 2000, that was 2002. So I think he left in 2000. Five, early 2005, I believe, or 2004. And he went back down to Santa Fe. And I think he w- and then he was doing uh, a lot more workshops, you know, and uh, just traveling. I mean, Munch Photography with their workshops is just international. It took off international, especially with the digital age. And by then, David had gone mostly digital. He was shooting uh, mm-hmm. a little bit of four by five. But, you know, wonderful human being and a great photographer. And um, so... Then things started really changing at the gallery, which was uh, uh, I was getting tired of color photography. I was kind of getting tired of the backlash of color photography because what was going on at that early 2000 era with the digital and the the newly invented HDR and all that stuff and uh, the believability of photography, you know, with the colors. And, and here I spent all this time shooting with film and, and, and then... <laughs> Uh, you know, you're kind of going, oh, please. I mean, how many times do I have to hear of these colors been enhanced or something? And uh, I was working with Bob and I was also working at another lab in Boulder. So I was getting, you know, a, a different, different palettes, different uh, ways of printing prints and uh, working with the printers. I always worked with the printers. I'd always be there for all the proofs and everything. So um, then we started going back to doing more traditional prints. And so I was printing uh, traditional uh, silver gelatin prints. And about 2006, we kind of, uh, I was working with another lab and we came up with this idea of using uh, a light jet printer to, to um, make digital negatives to make larger platinum plating prints, which is that, really is that not- lava, lava light. <clears throat> No, it was a. Uh, oh, what's it called? Uh, well, the um, 
the the printing it was it was it was a Lightjet 430, which are laser printers, and it was a Fuji Flex substrate. I'm, uh, but it was a, just a clear, so it was a film base, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, then we would print the negatives, and then and at that time I was shooting, I was uh, using Kozo paper. So the longest Kozo paper we could get were 24 inches at that time. This was 2005 or six, if I remember. So there was a guy. His name was he had a he had a place there called Camera Obscura in Denver, Colorado. His name was I think it was Hal. I forgot his name. Hal. He was about 80 years old. It was a, it was it was his most amazing gallery. He had you know he had work of uh, Paul Strand and Adams and everything. And so we we came down one day and we said, Hey, uh, Hal, take a look at this. What do you think? And he looked at these platinum prints and he's like, What are these? And we're well, they're platinum. he goes, I know they're platinums, but wait a minute. Nobody has a 24-inch camera because he's thinking they've got to be printed directly from the negative. And um, I said, Well, which just what do you think first? You know, and he's and he's pulled out this loop, you know, a 10x loop, and he's 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 looking, he's like, I don't see any dots. And of course it was a continuous tone laser. And uh he says, this, 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 this shouldn't be happening here. This should not be real. We're like, <laughs> so we thought we're onto something, right? So uh, we ended up going that way, started making some platinum prints. And then we had to refine it because that particular substrate we were using, every time we turn on the UV lighting from the platinum printer bulbs, it would fry the negative after two times. And I was like, well, this is, this is not good. It costs $300 to make it. Then it, you can only use it one or two times, right? So, right. Yeah. So we had to go over to a different substrate. By then, the the, the uh, printers were getting better. The Epson printers were where they were, they were so good that you couldn't see the dots. So then we were able to start printing the negatives onto that. You know that substrate. It was a different kind of substrate too. From I think it was from Mitsubishi was making the substrate for us. So uh, and then of course we go back to Hal with the bigger one. You know he's like, what is this? You know <laughs> so. Um, we ended up having at one time about the largest platinum print in the world. I mean, it was because uh, the sheets of paper were 43 by 30. So it was an arches platine. And you, you got the watermark, at, I think at 42 inches, the watermark would say platine. So we were able to fit it in about 29 and a half by 42 inches or something. Of course, now they can do stuff that's, you know, almost 10 feet long if you, if you wanted to do it or if you had the money to pay for it. But it was a fun time. So we, I really delved into the whole traditional printing and um, got a lot of different printers. I worked with about seven different printers around the country, and we were doing bromoils and platinums and silver gelatins and photogravers and just all this craziness, you know. It's, and it brought a lot of attention to the gallery because of, you know, the folks that come to Jackson Hole and a lot of the, a lot of the clients are from New York and Connecticut and back east where they have the big museums and they grew up with platinum prints because of the work of Stiglitz and Steichen and Paul Strand and Irving Penn. They see, they know what they are. And so it, it became kind of a, you know, a, a cool, a cool thing to be doing right at that time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And you're, you're working with uh, Hidden Light, right? In Flagstaff? Yeah I, work, yeah. I work with Hidden Light for platinum prints and silver prints. And I work with, uh, I work with a gentleman, Stan Climate, that were, uh, that does a lot of work for Sally Mann and the um, 
Cartier Brisson estate. He does gum over platinum prints. I mean, Stan's one of these guys has been printing for probably forty years now. Oh, unbelievable! You know, he, they fly him to France to print Cartier Brisson's stuff work. You know, so uh, uh, it's uh, and then there's a uh, Tim Layton's in Missouri, incredible black and white printer. Uh, I work with uh, John Lybrook, who does. Uh, uh, photographer prints and then we you know there's just just so many variables that we do everybody has their style and i'm a big believer in you know working with people you know uh, as in unison to, to for a creative style together because i don't want to put all my eggs in one basket in other words you know you just like I, this person does incredible color work you know jen freehill at photocraft and and this person does incredible gum over platinum and these people do incredible, you know, uh, contact print, silver prints, like the guys in Flagstaff, most of it's contact print I'll do because I may have shot it digitally instead of mm-hmm. with eight by 10, whereas Tim Layton is great with film. And then also there's a uh, lab in New York, uh, in New York that I worked with too, that, um, does incredible work with, um, with both negative and, um, Hank's photo. It's Hank's photo in New York. So they work with negatives and contact prints. So then they make huge prints. Oh my God. You know, just the biggest silver print you've ever seen. So when you are uh, thinking about, you know, making a image, like let's say you're in the field and you're kind of pre-visualizing, visualizing that final product where you've got it hanging in your gallery. Right. Like in your mind, what are the steps from A to Z to get that image in a perfect, I guess, uh, ready for print in the field? And then what are the things that you're thinking about and doing in between then and printing? So I know that's a big question. Yeah, yeah. But that, <laughs> first, you know, again, that goes back to your 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 analysis earlier. It's like it, it kind of pays to put in the time. Yeah. Because in that time, you've made so many mistakes. <laughs> yes, yes, I have. I do not want to go down that path, you know. I don't. So, and this is where, when you have a great relationship with your printers, you, often I will, I'll see something. I go, well, this could, this could really be a nice silver, or maybe it's a good platinum. And then I would contact one of them. I say, look, I got this image. What do you think? And nine times out of ten, they'll say. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think you know, you, if the printer says that. Like, I don't think you're not going to get very good. You're not going to get a good print from them, right? So they're thinking <laughs> not something I can probably do for you, but you might try this. And by then, I've sent it to a couple of couple of three printers at the time. And um, the more experienced photographers, I mean, more experienced printers are going to give you the answer right away. Oh yeah, we could do this. I, yeah, I'd love to do that. Or I'm not quite sure if I'd want to do that, you know. So then if they kind of guide you. Sometimes, if you're fortunate, you can work it both ways. And I've done that. I have a couple of prints, maybe about three in the gallery that I always show it as a platinum and a silver. And it's funny because sometimes I think it's, it's, this is a perfect silver print. But then I put the same print as a platinum up and it'll sell out. And you're like, ah, you know, because just the mood that's each one of them evoke a different mood, you know, with the platinum and silver and the history. And plus the collectors, maybe they only collect platinum. Maybe they only collect silver, you know, so, um, Hmm. but 
usually I can, I've got, you can narrow it more and more uh, with the digital. Obviously, if I'm shooting digital backs now, I can really, it's kind of almost like two, you're almost cheating. You know, you're like, wow, this is really good. You know, you go into, you know, I, I have a GFX 100 I, and I just started shooting mirrorless like a year ago and I could go in there and I could put it in an Acros red filter and go, wow, wow. Okay. That, that, that tells 80% of the story right there. And then I can go over and the film simulations because they are Fuji film sim- simulations and I can uh-huh. go over to a sepia look and go, Oh, now I'm really confused. I'm in the field. And, but the beauty is, if I know that I'm leaning towards a sepia, which would be more like a platinum, because if if you're using more palladium, it's a warmer printing process, mm-hmm. then then it allows me to expose properly how I'd like to have that image come out. And of course, with you know 16-bit files, they're so malleable, you can just do so much with them later. So um, it that does help in the process, but it's trial and error and experience, you know, and uh, you don't want to. You don't want to push it too much because it's very expensive making these prints. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Like if you're yeah. tripping a yeah. file for platinum palladium printing, let's just say like a 24 by 36, mm-hmm. what is that, you know, roughly going to end up putting you out by just to, just to make it? Oh, you know, ish. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. So if it's say it's a, say it's a platinum print, uh, it's probably going to be nowadays, Gosh, now palladium is so expensive, about $2,300 an ounce. So you're looking probably at about 22, probably about $1,750 to $2,500. Just, just to print. make it. Yeah, just to make it. Yeah. Well, then you got to add in the digital negative, which is going to be like $350. So yeah, you're, yeah I'd say about $2,500, $2,200, to $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, something like that. And then if you're doing a silver gelatin, you know, you say you do a regular silver gelatin and of course it'll be a little bit, a little bit less, but I tend to want to do a selenium tone. So then you stop the oxidizing of the silver. As my good friend Clyde Butcher would say, you turn the silver to uh, uh, sterling silver, stops oxidizing. So um, that doubles the print price right there. So now you're up to probably 1750 on that, on that one. So, but I do a lot of bigger prints. So, um, you know, say a 32 by 40 selenium tone silver gelatin print could easily run almost $3,000 to do. That's just the cost of the print. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the frame. So, and most of the frames now, if, you, if you're having a really, really good frame on it, say like a pitcher woods, you know, the ebony washed frame for, for black and whites, you know, with a hand wrapped linen mat, you're looking at three to $4,000 on that. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to really think it through. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, that, that that right there tells me why for you it's so important to have such a close relationship with your yeah. printer because, yeah. and you know, <laughs> you don't want to flush four grand down the toilet on a photo that you can't sell. Yeah, right, right, right. And that kind of that kind of puts the ego at the check, too, because you're going, okay, what <laughs> is it really this good? And is there a is there any remote possibility this thing could sell, you know, because <laughs> there are certain things I would love to photograph and, and people will say like, well, you know, you should, you do, do you do more abstract stuff? I go, God, I would love to do abstract stuff. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of success. One of them was called Picasso blinked. It was an abstract of like a hillside with the snow and 
you know, it just looked like a Picasso painting. And I think the title probably sold it more than anything. But um, you, you know, people that that's such a small minuscule of the population that what they want to buy. And it's, and I admire people that can do that and, and get away with it. But it's really, really hard. You've got to be I would think you'd almost have to be in some district of New York to sell it because most people look at it, they go, what the hell am I looking at? You know, or, or, or you, or so minimalistic that it's just pure black, pure white. And it's, but you know what it is, but I, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a tough one to sell, you know, and and when, you know, when you're paying an exorbitant amount of rent and you've got your, you got to pay all this money for your employees and everything, there's, there's that constant, Okay, what what can I make that's really good but marketable that I'm proud of? And I think everybody, every photographer that deals with that in a, in a sense, you know that. Um, yeah, it's not like found, going to, go ahead. I was gonna say, have you found that aspect of your particular business model to be something that has limited the things that you photograph in a way that you regret it, or do you just kind of own it and know it and you're good with it? Uh, I always fight with the limiting part because, you know, for me, I, you know, I was supposed to be in, um, the Faroe Islands now. And my, and my, and my wife goes, uh, honey, um, how many images have you sold from your Iceland trips? Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. I know. But you know, I, I really gotta, I gotta go. I got, she's great. She lets me go. But if you go to Italy and you shoot something in Tuscany, people can relate to that. You know, they, Isn't that they, funny? They, they probably went to Tuscany and had the best bottle of wine and, and, and meal and they just relax and they're like, Oh God, Tuscany. I love that. I'll, I'll buy that print. That just reminds me of Italy. So they're buying something that they're tied yeah. to emotionally that you're right. representing. And, but if you, you know, Iceland, I mean, who, who goes to Iceland? Young kids are, you know, backpacking. It's, it, you know, you don't find the, the New York crowd that's going to MoMA and all these great galleries, they're not hiking the hills of Iceland. You know, they can't relate to it, right? So, um, you know, in, in Jackson, I would always tell people, if you really want to make a money, a lot of money, you just shoot the Tetons and the animals and all the little cute little bears, you know, and then sell it really cheap. And, you know, people will buy that. But that has changed now. It's really changed the last five years. And, oh, about the last 10 years, it's starting to change a lot more. It's become such a sophisticated art market. but you know, the cliche, cliche shots, you know, people will pick up the first time. And then second time they want art usually when mm-hmm. they come back and they come back all the time. But get back to your question. It's something you constantly struggle with because, you know, you have to keep pushing yourself, you know, into the unknown and as an artist. And you have to just keep pursuing that that path. But the. um you know, the opposite of, opposite of that is you, you know, you look for what's clear and true rather than relying on uh, what's great or, or powerful, you know, those, those in your face shots. So you kind of want that. That's what you're trying to say. You know, I, I, I remember that you were talking to um, Brooks, you know, and that the saying, you know, Kokoro, you know, I mean, uh, that, that was one of the first words I learned in Japan, you know, Kokoro, the heart mind or, the center of things, you know, that's, that's what you're trying to present. And you're hoping that's what sells because that, when you sell one of those, you go, okay, I moved this person. You that's know, cool. Yeah. Instead of something was, this reminded me of something, uh, 
No, I moved that person. And those are the ones you love. Those are the, those are the best images. You try for those. You don't always get it, but you try. You know, mm-hmm. that's what mm-hmm. keeps going. Uh, Have you found that that uh, that I don't know that mind challenge is that does that influence what you decide to end up printing and hanging? Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely. And and is and you're always going for more and more as you as you get older. You're just going for that mood. You know that that mood that image something that is a little vague and nebulous, but you know that that mood to where they see where you're going with as far as portraying that particular, uh, in, uh, whether it's a tree or a grass or a landscape, you know, uh, where you're taking it with you through the printing process or how you captured it. And that's why I really love, um, I'm as I get older, and, and I know that at my age, I'm 66, so my career is already arced. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not somebody who goes on social media much. I, I don't really do. A, I, I do a lot. If I get 200 likes, I think, wow, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and my, I got a friend, Jimmy Chin, you know, he gets like 10 million, you know, but, uh, but I mean, it's, uh, I, I just not big into the whole social media stuff. You know, I just kind of, you know, you put it out there and, you know, it, it's fun, you know, it's just like, yeah, this is what he did today or whatever. So, um, and, and that shouldn't be a deterrent either because, it, you know, a lot of it, there's certain ways you can photograph to make them look really good for social media. But those people never buy anything, you know, so you're kind of wasting a lot of time in, in some ways that trying to fulfill your ego through social media. But um, getting back to, you know, the creative side, um, the, you know, your printing methods were definitely going to create the mood. They're going to take the person into the print. And of course, lenses will create moods and how you shoot with the, the various lenses. You know, how you shoot with an 8x10 is so different than how you would shoot with a regular camera with your tilt, swift, shifts, swings, everything like that. Um, how you can change that plane of focus. You can you know, work with that. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the old classic lenses, the way they render, render and the renditioning of the scene with the micro contrast, you play with those. So that's kind of where I'm having fun doing now. And sometimes you look at it and you go, what am I doing here? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you, it, it, it takes you down another path, another rabbit hole to explore. Yeah. And, and then you, you get something and people go, how'd you do that? And you'll go, do you really want to know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So uh, I think it's kind of like a chef. You never have the perfect plate. You never cook the perfect plate. You're always looking for something just added a little bit differently or maybe i need this kind of pan to get it at a certain temperature to cut these vegetables a certain way that you know to bring out the flavor and you're always constantly um trying to improve on something you know yeah it's funny when you were talking earlier about um having like you have to do photography like you yeah. it was a job that you needed to finish and one one of the thoughts that came to my mind then and now again when you just said that was it the coolest thing about photography for me is that it's a job that never quite feels finished, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Even though like you still, I like, Oh, I want to, I want to finish that job, but you never yeah. will. <laughs> well, you know, this is why I really love listening to other artists. You know, you, you see, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, you, you listen to someone like Paul McCartney. Okay. And, mm. 
And here's somebody like, how could Paul McCartney not love every song he does? He goes, yeah, but you know, I don't really like the way, you know, it still bugs me the way we recorded this one song. You know, it wasn't one of your best <laughs> songs you ever did, you know? And, and, and you, then you get artists that are so picky that they can't release anything. Cause like, well, I can keep improving it. But at some point you have to go, that's it. Cut. Let's go next. You know, that's yeah. a wrap. And then you do it and then you put it out there and you, you can see the flaws in it, but it's okay. I mean, life is, you know, wabi-sabi. You know, life always has a little bit of flaws in it, right? That's, that's, you embrace those and that, that's, that's good too. And the cameras you shoot with now are going to be obsolete in some ways, especially digital stuff. You know, it's going to be obsolete in certain ways that compared to the newer technology. That doesn't mean it's any worse. It's just that uh, they don't, they render differently. Like in the old days, I, God, there were so many types of film in, in Tokyo. I mean, there, it was unbelievable. The, the different film manufacturers that I would see in Japan, you know, you had Sakura, you had Konica, you had all these various films that, and they all were, this was designed for like weddings where everybody had white skin and pearlescent, you know, face and it was amazing, but that's all gone. So we have to try and figure out how to get something similar to that. But it's on us now instead of on the film manufacturers. So it's always, it's this constant flux of change and change, but there's got to be a thread of who you are within it. And that's where that passion goes in. And, and I also think working with other people, you know, um, mm -hmm. I have one of my really good friends, Jen Freehill. She works at Photograph. Amazing color. Oh, no. I know you Jen. Know, yeah. yeah, Jen. Okay, yeah. You know, she's one of those one of those individuals. I forgot the, how you uh, – tetrachromes or something. They, they see – I think she has four cones, you know, in her eyes for color, you know. So they, she can see the subtleties of color. And one day we were working on an image, and she turned around. And she goes, you know what? I don't think of you so much as a photographer anymore. She's known me for almost 20 years. She goes, I think of you more as a director. <laughs> and I went, director? She goes, yeah, because it's up to you to decide on who to work with to do this. And, you know, that's probably your knack is that you know who to choose to do this stuff because you work together with me. We'll work on this print for, you know, a couple of days, but you're going to get what it's going to be good for what that image is. And uh, I think that's where a lot of people, younger people should, Think about learning to do that because you're never going to be as good as the best printer. Right. I mean, you know, it's just it's just too much to draw on. Ansel Adams was a, I think Ansel Adams was a much better printer than he was a photographer. But he was a great photographer, but he was a really incredible printer. You right. Know? And Absolutely. then you have, yeah, and Bruce Barnbaum. I mean, my God, his prints are just like unbelievable. You know, and he shoots for the capabilities of what he is. Uh, what he's printing, but his prints are just luscious silver gelatins, you know, and then, um, you know, you see, oh gosh, there's just, um, of course, you know, Curtis, Edward Curtis is working all that, but, um, uh, there's usually those, the weaker part and the stronger part. And back then you had more time. We just don't have that time now. And of course, Ansel didn't run a gallery, you know, but he tried in San Francisco for a while, but that failed until later on. But, uh, it's just a lot of work involved, you know, payroll. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's let's talk about that. I'm yeah. I'm curious. Uh, what what are the aspects of owning and running a gallery that you enjoy, and what are the aspects that you wish you didn't have to deal with? <laughs> okay, so well, it, it, let's see. So 
I love taking the photos. I probably now at this stage of my life, I because I've I've done a lot of ventures, right? You know, you've done these long trips and you just go out, 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 out. I probably enjoy the actual printing more than the photography nowadays. Interesting. I like to be in the gallery because that is my pulse to see where where directions are going. And to be successful in a gallery, you really have to be five years ahead. You know, you can't be at the current stage. You have to be thinking ahead because you have to. It's kind of like in music too. You've got you can't just play this type of music. You, you, the cool the cool bands are the ones that are what's going to be cool five years from now, right? So um, you're definitely going to be trying new things. You have to you have to accept. This is really important. If you ever do a gallery, you have to accept the fact that, uh, or you have to be willing to take criticism because you're going to get criticized. Uh, and that's okay. You get thick skin after a while. You just kind of laugh at it. You know, you go, well, hey, they're probably right. You know, maybe so. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you hear you hear people say, yeah, well, you know, my, my, my daughter's a photographer. And then you, uh, she's 12 years old and got an iPhone. She says stuff just like this. You're, and you're going, Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So um, you. Yeah. So, but but you learn from that, and the, and that's good. Now you get a lot of people though who come in and who want to purchase also, but they may not be able to afford it. But you know their hearts in the right space. They really love the work, and the, and those and they come back when they come back time after time after time after time. Uh, we just had a gentleman in today. Uh, he's only been shooting for three years. He's south of Dallas. He lives in this little town. He came up to photograph the bears that are coming out now. And um, he comes in the gallery every year. And he says, you know, I, I, I can't afford anything, but I'll buy your book, you know, because I love looking at your work. So you're, you're, you're still connecting with people. Mm-hmm. And you have to take them all. You, you have to be generous and genuine with them. You know, you can't be dismissive. You know, it's just, it just doesn't work. You've, you've got to make it an environmental an environment where they feel calm. You can't be pushy. You're not trying to sell. We just greet everybody like, you know, thanks for coming to the gallery. If you have any questions, take your time. Just feel free. Look around and back off and let them just just enjoy it because they just want to. They want a little time for solace, you know, and just to be quiet and get away from the traffic and just enjoy. So we don't really do a lot of pressure there. Um, and, you know, usually they do come back and then we become good friends, you know, and go on trips together and things like that. But um, um, that's the thing. And also realize that it's going to cost a lot more than what you think it's going to cost. I remember reading an article one time because Mangelson's like right up above me, uh, his his office. I see Tom all the time. We were talking one time and I believe he said in an article one time that you know, at that time when he had a lot of different stores. The average cost of opening a gallery was about $340,000. And, and that was, at that time, I think he had about 12 or 14 galleries. So, wow. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, and I, you know, I think about it. I mean, <laughs> do the math. I've got, I've got, I've got eight, 80 prints in my gallery. Sometimes I'll have almost up to 100, but I think now we have about 80. Um, and oh, I'd hate, I, I'm afraid to think what they would cost now because the platinum prints are so expensive. And then you start getting into the handmade, uh, uh, frames, you know, uh, I mean, we, some of those frames cost $5,000, you know, you're like, but you hope to, you hope to make it back when you sell it. You know, <laughs> you know it's just very expensive. If you're going to go 
you know, for a full-on presentation. And mm-hmm. I think you have to, you know, unless you're someone like, you know, very famous Sally Mann or, or like, again, uh, uh, you know, Sugimoto or, or some of those people who can draw, you know, two or three million dollars or more for a print. But then that's usually auction house. That's usually not in a gallery. But, um, you know, you want that presentation because we've fought for so many years to be recognized and noticed as another form of art. And it's nice when people will come in and will spend substantial amount of money because they actually want a piece like that to fit in their six, seven, ten million dollar home. And that really feels good, you know. So um, it does cost a lot to start a gallery. Start simple, but you it's gotta be good quality. If you're gonna hang on a wall, it's it's gotta be the highest quality. And mm. yeah. And then you get into additions and what are addition numbers and what's you know, then there's this that's a whole new world unto itself, you know. Um, yeah, you know, because you're. Yeah, are you're, you uh, are you doing all limited edition work? Oh, very. Yeah, you know, when I first came here in two thousand one, let's see, Mangelson across the street was like fifteen hundred. There was a guy, Fred Joy, was nine fifty, and another guy, Henry, was nine fifty, and I was like, "Good lord, will I ever sell that many prints?" Of course, it was color stuff, so I was doing like. 250. I thought, well, okay, maybe. maybe. I had no idea, right? I mean, and I hadn't been in the States in 15 years. I had no idea. And for the color work, maybe you can do a lot, but you're never going to really ever sell that many. And so I thought, well, that's that's kind of lame. So about a few years later, we went to 100. And okay, and that's not going to work. And then when you started doing the handmade prints, the silver gelatins and the platinums and everything, then you got to go really low because your, your clientele demand that. They're just like, well, mm-hmm. what's the addition? That's one of the first questions. Uh, Ten. Oh, that's good. Okay, that's that's good. You know, if you had said twenty-five, that would have been too many, right? So um, they just expect lower edition numbers. So sometimes we'll do five, you know, five or seven. So everything now is pretty much like fifteen or below. Now, do you ever sell the same images on not a handmade uh, medium for open edition? Well, that's a great question. So. For a while, I was only doing silvers and platinums, all that. But mm-hmm. you just you meet so many people that well, I I love it, but I just can't I can't afford that right now. So okay, right. So I, mean, then, I personally don't know anyone yeah. who can afford, you know, yeah. forty grand for a part. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, they're out there. It's just yeah, you you want to hang on to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. So. Um, so what I'll do is I'll say like, okay, this edition of 15 and they'll say, okay, oh, great. And I say, I've allotted so many for silvers and so many for an inkjet that is very much like that silver print. And there are new inkjets now that are coming out that, well, that latest Epson printer, it's like 400 years now on the black inks, uh, the pigment oh, inks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The new Epson. That's, that's pretty amazing on certain papers. Now that's according to Wilhelm. I don't know if it's true or not. You know, you don't even if it's two hundred. Right. That's, that's as long as like, it's silver. How gelatin, do you right? really know? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of. <laughs> I know, but if it was half that amount, and if you, when you explain it to people, most nine times out of ten they'll say the you know the the the, the answer will be well, I'm never going to live that long. I don't care. It's like well, okay, but uh, uh, so I'll allot certain amount to like we'll have this many and this many and this many. And, and then they're kind of comfortable with that. And then you can, then you can sell to people because, you know, maybe your average silver print may be seven to $10,000 and it gets towards the end. It could be, you know, we've, you know, they've 
I mean, we've had some $75,000, okay? That it's like the last one or it's the artist proof or something like that. So you want to, and those are just for specific collectors who buy stuff and often they'll give them to museums later on. So it's for, I hate to say like, it sounds like a lot of money. It does to me. But for them, they probably made that before lunch, you know, so the businesses are in, you know, they're flying in their private jets and everything, but they're great patrons of the art. But you've got to, you got to be able to, to merge everybody who comes in with, with your work. And I don't want to be the type of photographer where it's like, well, I only do this too bad for you. You know, that's just so elitist. So you've got to be able to offer it to all, all, all types, you know, of folks too. And, and we, and we donate a lot of prints too, for certain causes and things like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then you, of course you can always make up, uh, uh, a lot of, well, for example, like the books that we do, I mean, often people will come in, they'll buy, say a platinum print or something. And we'll always, we always give the books away. And it's not the smartest thing to do, but they, they want, you know, they want something that, that they can have in their house, you know, and it's a really nice book that was made and, with you know, like silk cover or something like that. So it's a, uh, it's a give and take. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why I try and teach younger people now, because I get a longer, a lot of younger photographers on almost on a daily basis. Like, how do I do this? How do I do this? Right, well, first mm-hmm. of all, what's your portfolio? How long have you been doing this? And what are you in it for? I mean, are you in it for fame? Well, then just go somewhere else because uh, you know, there's, there's only so many people that can reach that. And if you're going after fame, it's just a false narrative anyway. So don't, don't, don't equate this with that. Just go with where, like again, where your path is taking you and how you want to treat those people that are coming in and how you want to be treated and respected by them. Because it's, it's this constant, like, again, going back to a restaurant or an artist, you know, they're only going to come in if the food is good and affordable, right? And same way with the artwork. And and just share your stories with them. So you know, I, I do a lot with the younger kids who come in and just try and teach them, like you know, well, this will take you this far, and this will take you that far. And um, but the important thing is quality, quality, and respect, you know, for everybody. And hopefully, they'll they'll get something out of that. And mm-hmm. and there's always somebody better at you <laughs> at something. Trust me, there's, there's always always you know. And, and I'm, yeah, that's, you've got to put that out there. You know, I, yeah, I think- I've, uh, I've long resigned myself to knowing that I'm pretty good at a lot of things, but I'll never be the best at anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I have fun when I go up where the bears are at. Right. And, uh, and, and you should see, you talk about glass porn. I mean, uh, there's so many people who've got oh, these, right. the latest eight hundred five six or, and, occasionally I may pull out a telephone lens, but I'm just happy with my GFX, you know, camera. If I, if if I'm using it, I put on a 250 millimeter, uh, lens that that's the longest one they have. And, and people look at me and they're like, what are you doing? You know? And and I go, I'm having fun, you know? (laughs) know, And then you you say, well, this is a hundred megapixels and I'm just going to crop it. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I, I don't even go there with that. I just, you know, if I get something, if I get something, it's okay. It'd be, it'd be fun if I get something, but I'm not really a wildlife photographer, but I have a lot of fun, you know, just kind of coming out, you know, but right. boy, you, you know, that's, that's a crowd that if you don't fit in the, in the, in the, you know, the group, oh, know. 
you you get crucified real quick if you do something wrong. So, I, you know, I just kind of like, well, I'm just here to see a, a grizzly bear that's 24 years old that just had uh, quadruplets. You know, I was like, good Lord, when's that happen? Not very right. often. So, you know, so. I'm just, a, I'm just an appreciator of nature. Yeah, exactly. And trying to learn something from it. Yeah. 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 It's not fun when you take it too serious. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you seen the, like in the last, you said in the last five years, the, the gallery business has changed a lot. Like what, what kind of trends yeah. are you seeing? Um, well, in Jackson Hole, what happened was, you know, after 9-11, um, the town really changed because you had an influx of New York and DC money. Sort of, I always call it the what if factor. You know, I mean, it was just a, so terrible what happened in both those cities. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of folks, for tax reasons, they wanted to purchase and uh, move a lot of money offshore into Wyoming, buy land. If something really got bad, they could always, you know, work out of here. It's beautiful. They built these beautiful homes. And with that came the, their appreciation for contemporary art and the Western art. It was always known as like one of the largest Western art communities in America and one of the largest art communities because there's like 32 galleries, you know, and some of them are 15,000 square feet, which is just unheard of, but they're huge. And, but ever since nine 11, almost every new gallery since then has been a contemporary gallery. So it's moved to where, it gives me liberty to do things that are a little more controversial or a little more on the edge. Whereas years before it was Tetons grand and Yellowstone centric. And, you know, I, I, that's something I just didn't want to do. So mm-hmm. it kind of allowed me to do like Japanese art, or I would do, uh, you know, dance images, you know, people like on stage dancing, or I could shoot flowers that were like gum over platinum, flower images and still lifes and things like that. So there's just, you know, people are constantly coming and saying, oh, what's new? What, what do you have new that's kind of, you know, contemporary? Now we're getting a lot of influx of folks from Silicon Valley. That's a whole different vibe as far as what they like as far as artwork too. And so it, it, it opens up so many more avenues for what I can shoot that I know I could probably sell to various people from all over the world. I mm-hmm. tried it in Santa Fe. We had a one-year lease on a place in Santa Fe, and it was just such a different world. You know, just, <laughs> it, 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 you, you just didn't have the crowd like you have in Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I remember the funniest thing was I, in the whole year, I only met one couple from New York and one couple from D.C., and I probably 90% of them were from Dallas, you know, just Texas, Texas. It was all Texas money, or, and East, East Texas, West Texas, mainly West Texas, and and some some from California, whereas you know Jackson Hole is all over the world. They just come from, so there's a lot more variation in the themes that we can pursue here than there. But um, that makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah, it's funny. People coming here, all they want to see is pictures of the train yeah. that goes or from Bangor to Silverton. I'm like, or, I don't. Yeah, Aspen, not, or the. I mean, uh, I, they they just want pictures of the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, no, I want a lot of smoke coming out that coal chimney, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I don't yeah. have any pictures of the train. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, I hear you. I hear you. You know, but um, it's it, it's still it's a great place. And in last year we had during the Fall Arts Festival we had something kind of like a Art Basel or Art Miami. It was a uh, oh yeah cool. Here, and a lot of European galleries came, all contemporary. So that kind of mixed it up again. So um, 
you know, I'm excited for the future, what it's going to be like, uh, what, what we can do. And there's just, you know, so many technology, technology is allowing us to do so much more stuff. So, um, yeah, it's fun times ahead. And good, <laughs> good to be centered here. I, it's good to travel. I always love to travel in your area. God, I used to go to Durango so often. I mean, that was always one of the first spots, you know, go fly from Tokyo to Denver, get out of Denver, and then drive to Moab and then head down your way and, you know, shoot the famous Ralph Lauren fence way back in the days when it was actually Aspen Bowl fence, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know, sneak out oh, yeah. there and ready to and hopefully the guy wouldn't show up with his horse and the ranch boss, you know, and I mean, all those kind of things. I would love the great memories of that area. I just love it. You know, yeah. yeah well, cool, David. Um, so winding down, I'm curious, who would you love to hear on the podcast? Oh, well, I think the first choice I would have, uh, well, these two would be equal. Of course, Clyde Butcher would be great. And I, you should do Clyde Butcher. He's, he's getting up there in years, but Clyde shoots 8 by 10 and, and bigger. <laughs> I should say, you know, <laughs> 16 by 20. Um, he's sort of the Ansel Adams of the Florida Everglades. I mean, he's got two oh, galleries yeah. down there, big, but he is a heart of gold and uh, such a gracious human being and uh, just so smart at what he does. And he, he gives back to, you know, the community and to save the Everglades. Um, he had a stroke about two years ago, but he, you'd never know it by talking. He just say he can't physically carry his eight by tens into the swamps now because he's got a just a little bit of a of a loss of muscle strength on on one side, just a little bit. But he's just a remarkable human being. What he has done for ecology and ecological, um, yeah. Effort. And he'd be a great he'd be a great great host. I mean, you'd be you'd you'd really like to have him as far as. He's not all over the map like I am. He's he can he can just string those sentences together so perfectly, and he's got something <laughs> better to say, you know. So, yeah, Clyde would be, and of course, the other one you may have seen him if you if you watch that video is Keith Carter, okay, down in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, Keith is amazing. I remember seeing his work when I was in in Tokyo, and you know, Keith just shoots. Um, what he likes to shoot. If it's some, it's a, it's some that he's passionate about and he's shooting that for himself. And if it sells, that's great. You know, I can't claim to do that. I mean, I, I shoot what I love, but sometimes I'm also influenced by, well, I still got to, like I say, got to pay the bills. Right. So, uh, but I try and I try, you know, to shoot something artistic that I think is a little bit different than everybody else, you know, but hopefully it is, isn't ultimately the customer is the judge of that. Whereas Keith just shoots stuff that's so off the wall and quirky and uh, it, it's just fun. Uh, it's incredible depth of insight, you know, that few photographers and the depth of what he shoots, uh, where he's at in that place when he shoots it is just unbelievable. You should check out some of his uh, stuff online. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A lot of it's centric to like the deep, deep south. Hmm. I think what was that what what was the name of the book he did something to blue uh he and his wife would go a place in southeast Texas for like ten years they'd point to a they'd point to a pin on a map and go, okay, we're gonna go there and every one of these towns had some quirky name to it, 
and they had no idea what they were getting into. And sometimes when they went to the town, it would just be like an intersection. <laughs> he goes, well, I got to shoot something here, you know? And That's a cool idea. Oh, yeah. And he did it for like 10 years, he and his wife. And it was just an adventure. It was just this kind of like off the wall. Well, yeah, let's do this. And um, yeah, 1985, it says on his website, yeah. Uncertain to Blue. Uncertain to Blue. Yeah. And he is a great talker. Go go, go to that um, the artist series. I think he was the one right after me, if I remember right. Oh, from Ted Forbes? Yeah, yeah. And you and now mind you, when they did that interview, um, that was like a couple months after his wife had passed away. So but to see the joy in his eyes and the the, the love that he has for humanity, even after that tragedy. It's just what a remarkable human being. He teaches, I believe, at a college down in Beaumont, Texas. But his stuff of the Deep South is just phenomenal. I love what he does. I just wish I could do it. But it's like, it's, just, <laughs> it's so different. And mindset's like, you know. <laughs> but yeah. he's so creative. Creative. Yeah. Um, so those two, Clyde Butcher and uh, Keith Carter, uh, another guy is someone that I like up here in Jackson Hole. His name is Jake Davis. I've watched Jake since he was like starting in college, and he's really matured into an incredible uh, wildlife photographer. Unlike most people, where you're on the roadside and you're you know you're getting yelled at by the rangers, and you're with a group <laughs> of about three hundred paparazzi's with those big lenses, Jake actually goes into the woods. And uh, he 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 know he always knows that the animal is going to see them before he sees them sees the animal, but he he spends time with them out in the woods where they get comfortable and that interaction he has with the animal uh, is uh, just phenomenal. It, it's really a, a kind of a quiet a quiet beauty that's in his uh, uh, his work. But it's Jake Davis. If you need if you need me to send you links or something. Mm, I- I think yeah, I found him probably. real, uh, let's see, revealedinnature.com. Yeah, revealed in nature. And now he's starting to work. Uh, again, he's, he's someone that deserves to be in the gallery. And I'm thinking sometimes I'd give him a show in ours. Um, oh, I love that idea. Yeah, because he, he did some embryo types that were really cool with some of his work. Um, but it wasn't shown in a photo gallery. It was being shown into a, a painting gallery, which was kind of, it wasn't the best setting for him as far as clientele. But Jake is wonderful. He's a wonderful human being, and he knows the animals. He's a good talker, um, and just a really good human being. And I, I could, and he's younger, you know. So he, you, you kind of see where the future is going with someone like that. And he, yeah. definitely, he's one of the best wildlife photographers I've, I've, I've seen. I mean, he's just very mature for his age. It's, it's great watching him from college all the way out. He's doing work with the BBC and Nat Geo filming now. So yeah. I think he's got a good path ahead of him. You know, he's at least he's making money with them. And then photography wise, he's, he can, you know, still take people out. He does some workshops, but uh, you know, he's just, he's just a true artisan, you know. God, it's uh, crazy how much talent there is out there. Oh my God. And it's so great. It's so reassuring. There is all that talent out there, you know, because you, you want it to continue in the right way. You don't want it going down some of the other ways that it kind of went down for a while and you're going, Oh, who cares about how much money you make and all this kind of crap? You know, it's like these guys are the real deal compared to where photography sort of went for a while. So, mm-hmm. and then, and then of course, if you can, if you can get her, 
I mean, it's kind of, it might be a little bit difficult, but Sally Mann would be the other person, you know, Sally Mann. Sure. Uh, yeah, she would be, she's a great author and a fantastic photographer. In the 80s, she did a lot of controversial work that really probably shouldn't have been too controversial, but at that time, it, <laughs> it was, you know, and, uh, but she's since then, I mean, just go on the internet, go on YouTube and just watch them, watch some um, documentary about Sally Mann. And you'll, you'll, she's just a lovely human being, shoots large format, does really crazy big images with them. Uh, does a lot of her, a lot of her work is shown back east, you know, uh, Gargarian mm-hmm. Gallery, DC and everything. So, but she would be great too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, bring a lot of presents, you know, like, wow, look at this list I have here. Sally Mann. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, like, I got some big, big stars out there, you know, she's uh, in, in the fine art world, especially in the fine art world, because right. she, uh, Stan does a lot of printing with her. And um, yeah, th- those would be the four I would recommend for, for sure, awesome. you know, because you've got a wide range. And if you could squeeze in one more, it'd be Kenro Izu. Uh, Kenro Izu. He's a Japanese gentleman. I saw his first work, his first show in Japan way back in the 80s. He does 16 by 20 uh, view camera. And now he lives, I believe, in Maine with his wife. And incredible photographer, incredible platinum work now. Incredible. Kenro Izu, I-Z-U. Yeah, I found him. Yeah, fantastic. And it'd be interesting to see now because you talked about me living 15 years in Japan. He's probably lived in the States for over 20 years now, or maybe longer. So right. to see his perspective of moving from the States to, I mean, moving from Japan to the States and getting into the fine art world. And, uh, well, he has a Wikipedia page. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how yeah. you know you've made it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, but he's very humble, very quiet, uh-huh. soft spoken. So I love uh, that. Yeah. I think that would be good. It's a nice lineage, you know, so. (laughs) I love it. Well, David, this has been awesome. Well, thank you. I hope it wasn't too much rambling going off. I had my little cup of coffee while we were doing this, but. uh, (laughs) Hey, man. No, I I love that you have so much to say and just really appreciate you being so generous with your time and spending, spending the evening with us. Yeah. And when you're up in Jackson next time, let me know. You know, I have never a, been there. Can you oh believe God. that? Oh, you should come. Yeah, you should come. <laughs> yeah, come in the fall. The fall is a wonderful time. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, now it's beautiful, but the fall is just so special. You know, like what you are. I mean, obviously, you have the aspens and all the beauty. We have a few aspens a lot, but we have the we have the animals. You don't. So, sure. uh, and it's just it's just a nice vibe here. Like in October, when everything slows down, it kind of goes back to being Jackson. And you can feel winter coming on, and. Uh-huh. Um, and, and everybody's in a good mood because the tourists have left. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's no, no you know, skiers. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. I can, I can, I can actually get a reservation in a restaurant. So. <laughs> oh, I know that's how yeah. it is here too. Oh, I know. But we get like three and a half million. So you can imagine how crazy yeah. it is. Yeah. It is. Well, awesome. thank you so much. And thank you for what you do. I mean, this is fantastic. Yeah. I'm yeah, very, yeah it's great. Fun. Yep, your love shows through, so that's good. Oh, great. I'm glad to hear it. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks to David for joining me on the podcast this week. If you're ever in Jackson Hole, stop by his gallery and say hello. 
but please don't tell him about your daughter's amazing iPhone photography. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Also, thank you to our newest patrons who are helping keep the show running. And of course, to our existing people that are helping keep us alive. I appreciate all of you. Thanks to Corey Peterson, Lisa Phillips, Zach Stanton, Michael DiMiola, Mike Baruta, Michael Papalardo, and Adam Bulliard. Thanks for becoming new patrons. You guys are awesome. All right, well, let's chat about what we have coming up. It is a packed schedule. Next up on the podcast is a new landscape photographer named Bree Stockwell. She challenged herself with an impossible goal to exhibit 10 photographs in 2020, and I asked her some really interesting questions that I think might help you no matter where you're at in your craft. We also have recorded with Felix Inden. He's one of my favorite photographers living in Germany, and he has a love affair with photographing the Arctic Circle. We also have a lot of really awesome episodes planned for this summer, including Mark Munch, Eric Bennett, Cole Thompson, Gerard Armijo, and several more. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.